Now our scripture reading will be taken from Romans chapter 1. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, we'll be looking at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1, which really becomes one long sentence, verses 1 to 7. And interestingly enough, it's the longest opening sentence of any book that Paul writes. In Ephesians, he does a long sentence when you start at verse 3 and go down to verse 14, but this is an introduction that's like no other. And here's what it says, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one heavy sentence that Paul has written, and it is a powerful opening to this great book of Romans. May God add his blessing to the reading of it and the exposition of it later. Would you join me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thy holy, sovereign, heavenly presence today. We desire to worship thee from our hearts, and we desire to praise thee with our prayers and our lives and our lips. You certainly have been so good to us and so gracious to us, and we thank you. Every day we have the privilege of getting up in this life. We owe you our gratitude. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Lord, you have been so good to each and every one of us. You've given us different lives. You've given us different skills, different gifts. But as this passage in Romans says, all of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are saints. What a tremendous elevation of any one of us that truly is. We pray that you would develop us, that we'll look like saints and we'll bear fruit as saints. And as we journey through Romans, we pray you allow this book to change us for your glory. We want to pray today for those of our congregation who are grieving. We want to pray for Lynn and the Holmes family and the loss of Lynn's mother. We pray that your comforting grace would be on them. We want to pray for the sick and the infirmed, Lord, that are struggling. We don't want to miss any, but those that would come immediately to mind would be John Breedville, who's struggling, Lord, in the hospital and Margie Johnson and Bruce DeVries, we pray for all of them and all the others that are infirmed in this fellowship connected to it. You know who they are. There are many listed in our prayer sheet, Lord. We pray for each one. Grant thy healing, grant thy strength, grant thy grace. Lord, we pray for our country and our leaders as you have admonished us to pray for them. We pray that you would save them. We pray that you would change them. We pray that you would sovereignly intervene in government to help your people. Frankly, we, uh, we just don't know, Lord, what to believe or whom to believe, Lord, but we believe you and we know you and you know truth and you know facts. And we pray that you would use your sovereign, mighty power that speaks things into existence, that causes weather patterns to come and go, that you would speak leaders into existence who help your people. We ask that 
In the confusion of this world, you would bring great calm to our souls. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. One night, D.L. Moody was preaching. He'd unlocked many of the gospel truths that are found in the book of the Romans. And one of the things that Moody brought out is that we're all sinners from the worst criminal to the most religious moralist. And there was a woman in the audience who was a very active church worker. She didn't like hearing that, that we're all sinners from the worst criminal to the most religious moralist. So she got angry with Moody and after the service, she walked up to him and said, do you mean to tell me that here I am, a good educated woman, I come from a good upstanding home, and I come from a good family, and I've been a good member of this church all my life, I've been a hard worker, I've done a lot of good things, and you're saying to me that I must enter heaven the same way the worst criminals of our day enter heaven? Is that what you're telling me? And D.L. Moody said, no, ma'am, I'm not telling you that, God's telling you that. That's exactly what God tells us in Romans. It would be like someone saying in the church today, you mean to tell me that I have to get into heaven the same way with people like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson? You mean to tell me I have to go to heaven that same way? And we would say, that's not what we're telling you. That's what God's telling you in the book of Romans. As we mentioned, Romans is the longest letter that's written by Paul, 7,111 words, 16 chapters. Second is 1 Corinthians with 6,800 words. It's not a normal letter. He's writing this to reveal the doctrine of God. This letter is aimed at not correcting some problems. It's designed to reveal the theology and the doctrine to give the people of God an understanding of God's gospels. Now, most letters begin with a short opening sentence. Romans begins with, as I pointed out, one long sentence comprised of seven introductory verses. No other document has ever been discovered from Greece or Rome that begins with such an extensive opening or introduction. And that fact alone shows that this is a sacred book. There's something unique about this book. It's a serious book. The depth of the gospel is not light and fluffy. And Paul fills the opening of this letter with deep theology. And by the time he's writing this, by the way, he's not a novice believer. He's been a believer for some 23 years. It was 23 years before this that God saved him on that road to Damascus. And now he's in a position where he really does grasp the gospel and he's going to write it. And when we go through this opening part, what we discover is there are three main introductory topics that he develops. Number one, he introduces himself. Look at how he introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I like the fact he begins with his own proper name and proper noun, Paul. That is amazing right there. Because you see, at one time, his name wasn't Paul. At one time, his name was Saul. And when you use that name, Saul, you think of that Boy, he was a highly educated, he was a zealous religious man. I mean, this was a guy who was dedicated to the law. This was a guy who was dedicated to religion. And when he uses the proper noun Paul to begin this, he's saying, I'm not the same guy as Saul. I'm a changed man. My doctrine's changed. God had changed him. In fact, he would actually look back on his religion when he was practicing it as Saul and say, it's nothing but dung, it's manure. 
compared to the relationship I have with God through Jesus Christ. So he starts off by naming himself. And then, if that's not enough, he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Or he uses the word doulas, slave. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now that certainly would mean something to those Christians in the first century Roman world because a lot of them were literally slaves. And when people hear that word today, I mean, you use the word slave today, most people are just immediately repulsed by it. But that noun was used to describe some great men of God. Joshua used that noun in regard to Moses and called Moses a servant of God. That noun slave was used concerning Joshua. Amos says it was used concerning all the prophets who were called God's slaves. It's mentioned concerning Elijah and Nehemiah and David. They also were servants or slaves of God. Now, you could become a slave in one of three ways. You could be forced into slavery by capture. Someone just captured you and forced you to become a slave. You could become a slave by birth. You were born into a slave family or by choice. Now, for most people who were living in the Roman world, they became a slave by the first two methods, either capture or birth. But for Paul, it was all three. Paul was literally captured on the road to Damascus and put into God's family against his own will. He wasn't looking for a relationship with Jesus Christ. He was looking to destroy anybody that was connected to Jesus Christ. But God literally stopped him and put him into his family and he tracked him down and he saved him. He just captured him. Then Paul was born into the family by spiritual birth. He was born again and then Paul willingly chose to become a slave of Jesus Christ to do the will of God. And to make yourself a slave meant you willingly submitted and obeyed the authority. Now, that seems almost hard to believe. I mean, people would willingly become a slave. Write down in your notes a woman's name, Clara Davis. Clara Davis. Put the date down there, 19... 37. She is an interesting woman. She had been a slave. She was a slave in the South. And she said, I work for white people that treated me really well. I was well fed, well cared for. I was allowed freedom. I could go for walks. I could listen to birds. I could look at butterflies. I had plenty to eat, and they paid me a good wage. Then she was set free, and she moved north. She said, I married a guy, and I had a home, and boy, I'll tell you what, I was living hand to mouth. I had some children. None of the children were interested in taking care of me at all or helping me. In fact, she said, I used to pray, Lord, give me back my house in the South, and the folks who really cared about me. Because if she'd have had a choice, she'd have willingly gone back to that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you choose to be a slave of the Lord, you'll never regret that. What you'll discover is you'll be well-loved, you'll be well-cared for, you'll be provided for, you'll be blessed. Paul says, I'm a slave. 
I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And notice the word order he begins the book with, because he won't use it all throughout the book. It's Christ Jesus. And that's his theology. Christ refers to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, Jews first. Jesus refers to the fact that he's the Savior. He's the Messiah Savior. And Paul is getting his theology right as he begins this. We who are Gentiles, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, have had the privilege of tapping into a program that's designed for the nation Israel. And he will emphasize the importance of the nation Israel later in this book. And that's why he begins with, Paul, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. His second credentials, I'm a called apostle. He says that in verse 1, called as an apostle. In Greek, the word called is an adjective. What this means is Paul is qualifying his apostleship. I'm not just an apostle, I'm a called apostle. In other words, Paul says, I'm an apostle because God called me to be that. I was chosen by God. I was gifted by God to become an apostle. I didn't become an apostle because I thought that was a good thing to do in a career. I didn't become an apostle because it was some trophy that I had earned. I didn't become an apostle because I was even thinking of being an apostle. He said, I became an apostle set apart with a specific gift and set apart with a specific mission by Almighty God. Now, to be a called apostle, there were at least five prerequisites. You had to be specifically chosen by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. Then, you had to physically see the resurrected Jesus Christ. You actually had to physically see Christ in his resurrected state. Thirdly, you had to perform special apostolic miracles. There were apostolic sign gifts that were given to the apostles. They're not given to us. They were given to them to be able to establish the fact that they were telling the truth. Fourthly, an apostle had to have general authority over the church. And fifthly, an apostle had special revelation to speak and write that which was inspired by God. Now, Paul never saw himself as somebody that deserved to be an apostle. In fact, he would say of himself, I'm the last of them and I'm the least of them. I, I never saw myself as being this. And he said, but I want you to understand I'm an apostle because that's what I've been called by Christ to be. Now, we're not called apostles today. And somebody who goes around saying they're an apostle is very confused. They're ignorant of the word of God because there are no apostles today. We're called saints and we'll talk about that in verse 7 when we get to that point. But Paul says, I'm a called apostle. And thirdly, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. I want you to understand that in verse 1. He says, I have been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul had at one time called himself, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And they were separatists. I mean, they separated themselves from all kinds of things in their religious quirks and traditions of men in their religious arena. They set themselves apart, all kinds of things. Paul said, I've not been set apart in the arena of religion. I've been set apart to present the gospel of God. God literally has set me apart to be the guy who's going to unravel and reveal the doctrines that relate to the gospel of God. God has marked me as the one who has been set apart for the purpose of revealing the gospel. And when Paul would talk about that in other writings, he said, I was set apart from the day of my physical birth. 
I was set apart from my mother's womb, which is interesting because he probably didn't come to faith in Christ till 35 years later than the day he was born. And yet he said, I was set apart from my mother's womb in the sovereign plan of God to be the guy who would actually be the one who would reveal the gospel. Secondly, I was set apart in that I received the gospel revelation directly from Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that. That's critical to this book. The things that we're about to journey through in this gospel of Romans are things that he got directly from Jesus Christ. Paul got that directly from Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he was recognized as being set apart by his local church in Antioch. There were leaders of that local church that realized God's hands on that guy. There's just no getting around that. And that church, by the way, was the first to recognize him by the name of Paul. So what Paul was specifically saying is, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. And I want you to notice he calls it God's gospel. This is the gospel of God. This book of Romans is all about God. In fact, the proper noun God, theos in Greek, is mentioned about 150 times in this book of Romans way more than any other book that Paul would write. This is stressing, this is God's gospel. So what Paul is saying here is I want you to realize I've been set apart from all the other apostles. I've been set apart from all the other people that have known the Lord. I have been given an apostolic responsibility to present the doctrine and the theology of the gospel of God. And he took that so serious that he said, woe is me if I don't preach it, if I don't present it. Now the second introductory topic is Paul introduces us to the gospel. Verse 2, you see that relative pronoun which, that connects to the gospel. So Paul is going to introduce us now to this gospel. This gospel is a complex thing here. We're talking about doctrines like justification and redemption and propitiation and sanctification and reconciliation. And we're talking about righteousness. And Paul's going to get into a lengthy discussion about all those kinds of things. And he uses a series here of subordinate clauses to immediately introduce us to truth about the gospel. And Paul is only nine words into the letter in Greek, 12 to 13 in English, before he starts developing the gospel. Now, the actual word gospel, euangelion, is a word that means good news. But as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, most don't know how good this news actually is. He says this is the greatest good news to ever come into the world. This news is so good that it can set one free from sin, from law, from condemnation. It can give a person the righteousness of God that will give them a relationship with God that has peace with God forever. And this gospel is about the righteousness of God. Don't kid yourself. Drop down to verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This gospel is about the righteousness of God. Now I want you to think about this as a possibility for your life. I want you just for a moment, I don't want you to dwell long on this, to run through your mind the worst sin you've ever committed. Think of it. Don't think long about it, you'll get depressed. But think about it, the worst sin you've ever committed. Now think this, here I am and I've committed this sin, I know I've done that sin, and yet I can actually have the righteousness of God. Think about that. Think about that. I can have the righteousness of God in view of the sin I've committed. 
Man, that's not just good news. That's great news. That's amazing grace news. And the Apostle Paul was focused on the gospel of God. He developed it eight ways. He, he, first of all, he calls it the gospel of God. The gospel I'm going to reveal in Romans is the gospel that is able to save sinners from their sins. It's his gospel. Then he called it my gospel. He called it my gospel. I got this directly from Jesus Christ. He said this was the gospel of grace. It's a gospel of grace. No works, no merit, no earning as a paycheck. This is a gospel of grace. Fourthly, he said this is the gospel of Christ. It's only found in one person. This righteousness is only going to be found in one person. That is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of peace. It's a gospel that can bring any sinner who's committed any sin into a peace relationship with a holy God. He said this is the gospel, the gospel, which means there are not multiple gospels. There's only one gospel. Then he said this is the gospel that's presented to the uncircumcision, the gospel that you tell the Gentiles, and it's a gospel to be presented to the circumcision, which is a gospel to be proclaimed to the Jews. Paul says this is the gospel, it's mine that I'm going to unlock in Romans. Now, unless you get this, you're likely to end up real confused because you'll read stuff in the gospels and you'll just try to say, well, how does that, where's the gospel? The gospel isn't there. Grace is all throughout the scriptures. But you're not going to get the doctrines of the gospel until you get to this book right here and go through it. There's where the doctrine of the gospel is revealed. And years ago, there was a guy who wrote a book, very familiar guy. You probably know who he is. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in his book, which confused Christians, he presented these concepts of the gospel is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he quotes those books, just Matthew, 138 times. And he only quotes Paul a total of like 39 times. And you're going, you've missed it, buddy. The gospel is not in Matthew. The gospel's in Romans. And Romans is the book that unravels it. And Paul said, I got this directly from Jesus Christ. And there are three facts that he brings out about this introduction of the gospel. First of all, he says, it's rooted in the Holy Scriptures. And I want you to notice what he says about the Scriptures. They're holy. They're holy. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Holy Scriptures. Don't treat your Bible loosely. Don't put coffee cups on your Bible. Don't put anything on your Bible. Let it stand by itself wherever you put it. Let it stand there. This is a holy book. This isn't just some book like the average book. These are the holy scriptures. And Paul said, this gospel that I'm about to present to you, it's not some clever system of theology that I've developed. It's not some clever system of doctrine that I got because I'm an academic. He said, the good news of God's gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. As Dr. S. Lewis Johnson said, well, it's good news. It's not new news. Its roots lie embedded firmly in the Old Testament. And don't overlook that. The scriptures are holy, and in the holy scriptures is the revelation of the gospel of God. And when you begin to understand the gospel of God that Paul will develop in Romans, you'll begin to become amazed, amazed at things in the Old Testament that truly do paint a picture of the gospel. Paul quotes Isaiah 55 in reference to 
Christ's resurrection. He quotes Isaiah 42 and 49 to establish the fact that his ministry was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Philip, in the book of Acts, cites Isaiah 53 as referring to the humiliation that Jesus Christ would experience on the cross. Peter quotes Psalm 118 to establish that Israel would reject Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself unraveled many Old Testament passages and said they're all connected to me. When you look at those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they all point to him. Daniel said the Savior would be cut off from the land of the living, and David said the Savior would have his hands and feet pierced. So this gospel is rooted in the scriptures. Secondly, it's centered on one person. Verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel is centered on one person. The entire gospel of God is centered on one person, one person alone, Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior. There is no other Savior. You can't save yourself. Don't put your name in here. Because we have nothing to do with this. This is God's work. This is his son's work. He's the only Savior. He's the only Messiah. He's God. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord. And to have the righteousness of God, we have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are two key points that Paul opens with concerning Jesus Christ. Number one, he was physically born as a human through the Davidic wine. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, that proves that he was the King Messiah's Savior. He had an actual humanity. He has an actual pedigree. He has a true humanity, but he also, in the next point, has a true eternality. Because his second point is he's declared to be God by the resurrection. Verse 4 says, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some nice story we tell at Easter time. This is concrete evidence that Jesus Christ is God, the very Son of God. This is concrete evidence that Jesus Christ can give us the righteousness of God and save us. And Paul says he was declared to be God and to be this Son of God who could save us by that resurrection. And the word declares an interesting word, horizo, from which we get our English word horizon. It is a particular word that means God literally determined and marked off by boundaries the specific person and place where we would actually be able to receive the righteousness of God and it is in his Son. God's the one who set that as the boundary marker right there. It's in his son. So to have the righteousness of God that will save us from our sins, we have to have a relationship with his son. And the event that proves that that is true is that resurrection. That sets him apart from every religious leader and every political leader who's ever lived. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that becomes critical to Christ's identity. It shows us that he's the one the gospel is all about. It shows us that he's the only one who can save us. And when he says he was born this according to the flesh, it means he has real humanity. When he says that according to the spirit of holiness, he has real deity. So verse 3 lets us know Jesus Christ was a real man. Verse 4 lets us know Jesus Christ was God. So Paul says as he opens this letter, you need to understand this gospel I'm about to reveal to you. It's focused on one person. The one person this gospel is focused on is Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that this one person 
can save us from all of our sins and give us a peace relationship with God. And the proof that he has the power to do it, the proof that he can do it is that resurrection. It declares him to be the Lord and Savior. And by the way, it's Paul who is identifying him in verse 4 as being our Lord. That's an amazing change from a guy who was tracking down Christians, trying to kill them because they were saying that. Now he's saying that. Which brings us to the third fact, God's gospel is connected to all believers, verses 5 and 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called. There are two connections that all believers have to the gospel. First of all, through Jesus Christ, the apostles receive grace and apostleship, and that is important for us to understand. The gospel that saves us is a gospel connected to the apostles. The gospel of God's grace was first given to the apostles. They passed it on to us. And there are three prepositional phrases that Paul uses to define it. Number one, it's a grace ministry about obedience of faith. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. In order to have the righteousness of God, you must obey the faith in Jesus Christ's principle in order to be saved. Your works aren't going to save you. You're going to have to obey what Paul says in Romans will save you, which is believe in the Lord. You will be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to have to obey that if you want an eternal relationship with an eternal God. The gospel of grace presents a message that you obey the faith-saving gospel rather than the religious work-saving gospel. And most of the people of this world are involved in thinking that their works are somehow going to make them right with God. Paul said, no, you've got to get to the faith system. You have to obey that. Believe in the Lord. And secondly, the apostolic grace ministry was to reach out to all Gentiles. I want you to see that there in verse 5. Obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. I want you to understand that. This is the only message of salvation. This gospel is a worldwide gospel. There is no other gospel from God. There's no other salvation message. Not from God. There's no such thing as a Hindu gospel for those that are in India. There's no such thing in the mind of God as a Buddhist gospel for those that are in Japan or Korea. There's no such thing as a Confucianism gospel for those that are living in China. There's no such thing as a gospel of the Mormons and a gospel of the Muslims. And there's a gospel of all the other religions that make up the world. Paul says there's one gospel of God that's to be taken to all Gentiles. There's one gospel for the world, and that gospel is about one person, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he said, the apostolic grace ministry is for his namesake. That's what he says in verse 5, for his namesake. That's the name that saves. There's no other name that can save anyone. If you're looking to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you're looking at the wrong person. If you're looking at a religion to save you from your sins, you're looking at the wrong religion. If you're looking at church membership to save you from your sins, you're looking at the wrong church. 
There's only one who can save from sins. That is Jesus Christ. You believe on him, you'll be saved. It's not our name that saves us from anything. It's not the church's name. It's his name. It's about his name. His second connection is through Jesus Christ, all believers receive a salvation calling. In verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. God's gospel is about calling people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are two remarkable statements that Paul makes to believers. Number one, you receive grace by God's calling. And that adjective called is never used in the epistles just to refer to an invitation you give to somebody who may or may not respond. When this particular adjective is used, it's used of one that God does call, God does save. What Paul says to these Romans is, I want you to understand something. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it was God who called you into that relationship with Jesus Christ, and it was God who saved you. You did not become a believer by coincidence or chance. You didn't just randomly bump into Jesus Christ one day. You were called into the relationship with him by the grace of God, the same grace that stopped Paul and called him into a relationship with him. And secondly, you receive grace by Jesus Christ. That's what the text says there in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The grammar here indicates Christ alone is the source of grace salvation. He's the one who paid the price for our sins. He's the one who proved his salvation of us by his resurrection, and he chose us by his own choice. And then Paul introduces us thirdly to the recipients of the letter. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three facts that Paul brings out to these believers at the church of Rome who at this point were pretty fuzzy about their concepts of the gospel. Number one, you're beloved of God. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to remember that. You're beloved of God. You have a very special, unique relationship with God. You're in his family. Number two, you're called saints. I want you to see that in Paul's grace gospel. You're called saints, not disciples. People overlook this. In fact, churches have what they call our discipleship classes. We have a higher status than that. Not that discipleship, learning things from the scriptures is something we shouldn't do. That's what this church is all about, teaching all these books of the Bible, teaching these doctrines so that we can learn them and we can grow. But you see, you have a higher calling than just being called a disciple. People that say, if you're going to be saved, you have to be a disciple. You're going, well, how come Paul doesn't use that noun? Why does he say we are set apart as a saint unto God? Because that's what the gospel does. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are elevated in your status and you go from being sinner to saint. I mean, you're elevated way up the ladder here in a relationship with the Lord to a level of sainthood. This is the same called thing that Paul uses in regard to himself and his apostleship, and now he applies it to every single believer in verse 7. You're called saints if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So not only are you beloved of God, you've been elevated to a called sainthood status, and you have grace and peace. That's what he says in verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. They're theological terms, by the way, that relate to the gospel that he will develop in great depth in this book of Romans. These are not just two abstract nouns that he throws out there just because he wants to finish a sentence with a couple of words. The Apostle Paul's theology is being developed right here. And what he's basically saying is you have a grace that's been given to you by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that has brought you into a relationship with him and you have a peace, a peace that is in a peaceful status with God from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never believed that his status was due to him. He thought it was all about God. God's the one who gave him all of these wonderful things in this grace package. He saved him, he stopped him, he gifted him, he allowed him to become a family member of God, beloved of God, a saint of God, and he said, I got all of this from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. Now that's grace. That's the gospel of God you're going to see in Romans. He'll develop all these doctrines as we go through Romans. I conclude where we began. Think about your worst sin, just for a moment. The worst sin you say you've ever committed in life. And then say to yourself, you know what? I can have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. As righteous as God in Jesus Christ. That gospel, Paul will clearly develop in Romans. Let's pray. If you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this would be a great time for you to settle it right where you sit. Just admit the truth about yourself to God. He knows all the sins anyway. He's got a record of them. You'll see it later in his book. He's got a record of every time we've sinned. And in Christ, he'll give you his righteousness. So right now, invite Christ into your life. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book of Romans. We anticipate a wonderful journey as we work our way through it. We pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work his way in our lives as we go through this remarkable letter. Thank you for it. It is so freeing, and we thank you for that. For anything that you've done here today, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.